Would you stand with me as we read today's scripture? Today we're in Acts 19, starting with verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you in, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon, all, fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. By way of reminder, we uh, started Paul's third missionary journey as we began, the cha uh, began chapter 19 of the book of Acts last week, and that's a bit of a misnomer. Right? You think of journey, you think Paul's running around planting churches all over. That's not the case in his third journey. In fact, he spends almost all of his time in the city of Ephesus. He spends almost three years completely investing in trying to build up the church there and win new disciples for Jesus in that context. As he leaves Ephesus, it will begin his road to imprisonment in Rome, which is where his ministry ends, in, at least in terms of our knowledge. Paul ends, or Luke ends Paul's story as he is under house arrest in Rome. And so this last part of Paul's ministry, you need to see as years spent, we're just going to get a few glimpses in these last chapters of Acts of Paul in Ephesus, but understand that years are going by as he's residing there and ministering amongst the people there. And as we are going through the book of Acts, we're asking, what does it mean to be the faithful people of God? What does it mean to be his faithful people? And today what I'd like to point out to you or to consider in light of the passage is that to be God's faithful people means that we don't turn away from him. Now, you could easily say, well, that seems pretty obvious. Right? Isn't the definition of faithfulness that we don't turn away towards something else? Indeed, yes it is. But what I want you to see particularly today and think about is that any turning away from God is a turning towards something else. There's no neutrality. You're either for God and believe he's powerful and trust him, or you are trusting in something else. And that's on uh, abundant display in our passage today. Luke wants to highlight what happens between verses 10 and 20 as dependent upon the word of the Lord. And to see that, we didn't get to read 10 um, in the reading this morning, which I should have put in, but I didn't include. And so if you have your Bibles, you can look at verse 10 where Luke says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia 
heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so uh, Luke makes clear that the church is being built on the word of the Lord. Now, what is the word of the Lord? It's not the New Testament. This hasn't been written yet. The word of the Lord is the good news in Jesus Christ that's being proclaimed. And this is the foundation upon which the church is being built. And then in verse 20, Luke's again going to go out of his way to say, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord, the word of the good news of Jesus Christ, is the very foundation upon which the church stands. And anytime we are tempted to turn away from that word and turn towards something else, we miss not some small part of Christianity, but we miss the whole. And this is what Luke is calling us to see uh, today. So how do we see uh, the people in our passage turning away and turning to something else? Well, as our passage opens, Paul is working dramatic miracles, uh, or God is working those miracles through Paul. So that even uh, fabric, pieces of clothing that Paul has touched are being used to heal people, are being used to cast out evil spirits, It's a remarkable display of the Spirit's power. And it does not go unnoticed. In fact, who notices? The itinerant Jewish exorcists. Those guys. Who who in the world are the itinerant Jewish exorcists? Not, Not a group of people that pop up very often in the New Testament. So these were Jewish men who would travel around and would cast out evil spirits. And that's how they made their living. This is an itinerant Jewish exorcist. Now, this next question you might have would be, what are Jews doing running around casting out evil spirits? And that would also be a good question uh, because this kind of thing, the magic that they're employing at this time was absolutely forbidden by the Mosaic Law. So something, there are a couple of historical notes that you have to know to understand what's going on in today's passage. And the first historical note is that by the first century, a significant part of Judaism had turned to magic and dark arts. Well, why in the world had they done that? Well, if we put ourselves in the shoes of first century Jews, remember that it's not been very fun to be a Jew. God hasn't spoken in hundreds of years. There hasn't been a a real prophet in a very long time. Uh, Not only that, but the Jews are subjected and at the whim of every power that is. So God has been content to see them kicked around by first the Babylonians and then the Persians and now in this day, the Romans. And so you can easily understand that to be a Jew in the first century, you might be like, this God, Yahweh, is not doing us very well. It's been a long time since he's shown up. I'm not sure he's really present with us. And here you see the temptation to turn. God doesn't seem to be here. He seems to be absent. He seems to have left the building. In order to navigate my way through this world, in order to handle what's confronting me um, and all the pain and to try to, to move forward in a good direction, I have to rely on something else. I have to turn to something else. And we know, of course, this temptation to turn. It is, it is a ubiquitous experience. It happens to everybody who seeks to walk a life of faith because at some point in your journey of faith, you are going to feel as if God left the building as part of the journey of faith. And so... Um, one example would be, uh, or one author who puts it very well is Kate Bowler. Kate Bowler is a, a fairly young theologian um, who was, uh, was diagnosed in the not too, quite recently with terminal cancer. And so she began to wrestle with what, what in the world is happening? What's going to happen to my husband? What's going to happen to my little boy who I'm not going to see grow up? 
and she uh, has written extensively to reflect upon this. And so she, she starts by reflecting on um, the question of suffering and why, is it, why does it happen in some places and not in others. And she writes, why do some people leap and land on their feet while others tumble all the way down? Why do some babies die in their cribs and some bitter souls live to see their great-grandchildren? And she continues to reflect upon this for a bit and then ultimately comes to uh, this, anyone who has lived in the aftermath of something like this, referring to her own diagnosis, knows that it signifies the arrival of three questions so simple that they seem in turn too shallow and too deep. Number one, why? Number two, God, are you here? And number three, what does this suffering mean? When we find ourselves in the place of feeling God has left the building and not understanding the suffering that's come upon us, those are the questions. Why? God, are you here? And what in the world does the suffering mean? What's the purpose? And these are the questions that we wrestle with. But what I want you to understand, even as you process those questions as you may have encountered them, is that these are the questions of first century Judaism. Where where is God? Why are are you here what is all this suffering? What does it mean and what is its purpose? And in that is the temptation to turn in a, another direction. And we can see this exemplified in an illustration like the prodigal son who decides that his father is not committed to the life that he wants and so he desires him dead and says, I just like my inheritance and I'll go in my own direction and pretend that you know I turn in a different way to have my needs and my my desire satisfied. I think of many other people, um, sometimes uh, people frustrated with God. I think of a, a dad I know who is frustrated that his son has walked away from the faith and has engaged a life that he doesn't respect. And as a result of that, he's become very angry at God. And he says, I don't, I'm not giving God anything because God hasn't carried through with my child and hasn't given me what I, what I want. We turn away, right? In what ways have you been frustrated with God or felt like he doesn't meet you in the midst of your suffering or discomfort and you simply, that tendency, you see that temptation, I'm gonna turn away. And, and sometimes we pretend I'm gonna be, I'm just gonna be neutral. I'm gonna take a little, I actually have a new guy, I'm gonna take a God break. I'm gonna take some time off. Or sometimes it's more aggressive and say, not only am I not going to worship God, I'm going to very actively turn to things that I know that God doesn't approve of. Because in them I find more respite or peace or joy or escape than I do in God who doesn't seem to be showing up. It's this temptation to turn in a different uh, direction. Now, what you need to see is that anytime you turn, and of course in this case when um, these Jewish people are frustrated, turn, you must turn towards something. Because you still have to navigate life. You still have to try to avoid pain and avoid frustration and fear and pursue pleasure. And so you're going to turn towards something, right? Whether it be something that you think brings pleasure and helps you to forget about the pain or something that you think will exercise control over the pain. Really, at the end of the day, they're all forms, at least modern day forms, of magic. Magic is what the ancient world embraced to try to manipulate or control supernatural powers and their reality. Now, you don't turn to something necessarily that you think exercises supernatural power, but you turn all the time to things that you think will exercise some kind of power over your reality 
and over what afflicts you. Right? And this is what the, uh, this is our modern day usage of magic, but is what's going on in, um, in the ancient world. Now, I told you earlier that there were two historical notes. One is that um, Judaism had not only really tempted to turn away from God, but that they had been turning toward magic and practicing various arts. We have lots of historical evidence of long incantations and sophisticated ceremonies that uh, Jews would engage by which to affect some outcome, right? So you'd pay a Jewish magician to engage this particular ceremony. It might take a day or two, and then you would expect this, this outcome uh, from uh, that ceremony. And Ephesus was the place to do it. This is the, really the second note, is that Ephesus was probably the capital in the ancient world of magic and dark arts. It was the, it's the house, or was the place where the temple to Artemis sat, which was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They, a comet, a meteorite, had hit somewhere near Ephesus and had been brought and was worshipped and thought to exert great power in the city. And all kinds of magicians from all kinds of backgrounds would show up and practice their trade, which is why when Christianity comes on the scene, it's going to produce some big conflict in the coming chapters when all the magicians are... Or their business is disrupted by people turning to Christianity. But here, right, the, the Jewish exorcists make a good business in Ephesus, casting out uh, evil spirits and doing other ceremonies. And so you can see, right, imagine that your business is exorcism, and you see a new guy come into town, and the clothes that he touches affect power over evil spirits. Like, oh, this guy's got something we don't. Right? And we, we had better learn how to use it. Now, in the ancient world, to command various supernatural realities often was bound up in commanding their names. And this is why you see the exorcist, right, in verse uh, 17. Mm, no, sorry, verse 13. They begin to say, I jury you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Right? It, they're not very intimate with this Jesus, Right? So by the power of this name, Jesus, that we've heard Paul use, right? And they're trying to exercise power by commanding these names, which unfortunately for them is not going to work out uh, so very well. As a result of using the name Jesus, uh, the, the evil spirit that is, um, once you get to 14, you've got the seven sons of Sceva, who's a Jewish high priest. They try to do this by employing the name of Jesus. And it doesn't go very well. The scene almost seems comical. Uh, in verse 16, or in verse 15, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And you, like at that, at that point you're like, uh-oh, this isn't going to go well. And, uh, and it doesn't. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Being naked, of course, a, particularly, a particular aspect of humiliation in the ancient world. Right? The evil spirit says, you're no one I need to mind. Right? Jesus I know, and Paul I know of. Uh, in fact, I know them better than you do. Uh, you I don't know. And so he overpowers them and sends um, them running. But we see here the exercise, right? Again, Jews have turned away from God have practiced something that is forbidden by the law and tried to exercise control over their reality by employing magic. And that is magic. Magic is an effort to control, right, 
what is around us, as opposed to faith, which is a surrendering to the supernatural. Right? The person who embraces magic says, I don't like what's happening, so I'm going to manipulate the powers that be for a, an outcome I desire. And the person who lives by faith says, well, I'm not really sure what outcome I should desire. I surrender myself to the power that is. Right? Two very different approaches to life. And most, most people in the world, um, and a lot of people in the church, are practicing magic. Right? Not in the ancient sense, but in embracing something that they believe gives them the power to manipulate their environment and control what is around them. Whether, um, and that can take, of course, any any kind of form almost that you can imagine, right? If I am super frustrated in, uh, in my work or in my parenting and I turn to look at something that I shouldn't, I'm turning to a form of magic that I think will deliver me in some aspect. I can think of other people who say, life is miserable, I'm going to spend money. And they, it's a form of magic. It will make me feel better, I will have the illusion of control over my reality. Or I told you about the dad that I know who's very frustrated about his son walking away from the faith and has distanced himself from God. And what's interesting is his magic is really, is really the law. Because it, when you talk to him, he says, I did everything right. I raised my child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I invested in him. I taught him the scriptures. I raised him in the church. And now he's gone this way. And that's not okay. And I'm going to hold God to account for this. Right? What is he doing? He's saying, my, my obedience, my perceived obedience, my perceived righteousness is something that should have affected and manipulated God into delivering me a righteous son who remained faithful. Well, do you think God is impressed by this individual's belief or assumption that he can manipulate God into the outcome that he desires? We employ magic on all, all sorts of levels. Of course, the irony here is great. Right Here are the Jews who have turned to magic and said God has left the building even at the very moment where God shows up in flesh, in humility, as a bondservant to rescue them from sin and death and produce a liberation that they could not have possibly dreamed of. Right? Even as they are turning away and saying he's gone. It makes us have to at least ask the question and be mindful in what ways are we, do we turn away and say, God, you're not present, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, when perhaps he's doing far more than we can see or would expect or would anticipate. As I said, the scene is almost comical, except it's important to note that the situation as perceived by those who were there, it was not comical. In verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now this is not a verse that's about conversion. It's not describing people bending the knee and proclaiming Jesus as Lord. What it's describing is really is terror. So said, oh, you can't take the name of Jesus lightly. We're now going to respect it. It can't be used lightly. Fear has gripped the community as a result of what has occurred um, because they've seen the power of the name of Jesus and they've seen the name of Jesus uh, misused. And so they begin to take stock of taking the name of Jesus lightly. And in that capacity, 
one way I just I found myself reflecting on this passage during the week was this notion of, you know, uh, um, whenever we think we can manipulate God, we uh, we participate in a form of magic. I have done X, therefore God must do Y. Now we often call that the prosperity gospel today, which I have obeyed and I have engaged righteousness, therefore God is obligated to bless me. Now we don't. We often say we distance ourselves from the prosperity gospel. But one thing, so all, perhaps all of us have been tempted to use because it's become such a common phrase, but I think it's a terribly dangerous phrase. And it's the phrase, uh, this is such a God thing, or it's really a God thing. Now, this is dangerous for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, when do people say this? Right, you say it when something's gone really well. Right? No one says, I have gangrene in my leg. It's a God thing. Which you really should, right? Because in him you live and move and have your being. And God, we confess God's sovereignty over all things and his work in our suffering, right? And so everything that happens is a God thing. It's really a silly thing to say from that. There is no such, nothing really happening that isn't a God thing in some capacity, right? But even, even more than that, when we say it's a God thing, we are assuming the, uh, the ability or the prerogative to assign to something that, oh, God is particularly at work here. Like, I, I recognize when God is particularly at work. Really, that's above your pay grade, way above mine. Right? And more often than not, I think we get that wrong because we don't like it, but God is most often doing his best work in the midst of suffering. And when uh, we get some unexpected blessing, it often causes more grief than it does blessing, or blessing is the wrong word, um, pleasure. Right? And so, uh, so be wary of that. But even, even more than that, uh, imagine that you're, you know, you're standing next to someone. I've heard you know, people say something like this. Uh, I just got to go on this amazing vacation. Such a God thing. And next to them is standing someone who never gets to go on vacation, period. Let alone gets to go on a good, sweet vacation. And so, and what's the presumption right behind that? Well, God has acted on behalf by extending this particular blessing, but he's not extended that particular blessing to this person. Well, what's the difference between the two people? Well, because the whole thing is buying a bit into the prosperity gospel, you assume God has shown particular favor to me, and for some reason God has not shown particular favor to this other person. I've seen numbers of times people say um, in the church you'll see you'll see someone standing there and maybe not you know showing up to church infrequently not serious about their faith and say it's such a God thing standing next to a saint in the church who is in a particular season of suffering and you just think you know if both of you stood before God today one of you would fare okay and one of you wouldn't and the one who wouldn't isn't the one with the God thing going on right you have to be mindful that it's so easy for us to buy into these notions of this is just, if I assume that, if I always say when I've received some particular material benefit that this is a God thing, then, then I'm ascribing to God that he most often deals, right, in, these, in material blessings rather than growing me in holiness or making my heart more flesh or putting to death my old nature, and as a result, what we often ascribe, right, 
because our hearts are that broken, if I've received some particular material blessing, it must be because I've done some form of righteousness. And if I assume that, right, then I've, I'm back in the world of magic. I've been righteous, therefore God has to bless me. And if I'm not being blessed, therefore I must be sinning. And what does that communicate again to the person who may be suffering? It's a, it's a, it's a dangerous road to go down, and we need to be careful of adopting such language and demeaning the suffering that is occurring uh, in the lives of, of others. It's a, it's a form, it's a distant relative, kissing cousin of the magic that we're reading about. So we all face this temptation that we see in the first century of turning from God. I'm frustrated you're not doing what I expect you to be doing. But then in our turning, of turning towards something else. I'm going to find relief or pleasure here. I'm going to find escape here. And so what do we need to do? Of course, we need to repent, which is what the people do. The believers who are in Ephesus, right, when they see what has occurred in the, to the sons of Sceva, and they see the fear that grips the community, uh, in verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 uh, pieces of silver. Now notice, uh, I should have started in, right up in 18, that even before they bring their books and burn them, what do they do first? They came confessing and divulging their practices. Now that's a beautiful picture of true repentance. You want to know if somebody's really repenting or not, or if you're really repenting? It starts, number one, with confession. I no longer worry about my image so much that I can't let anybody know what's going on. I would rather be right with God than I would be in hi about hiding the sin. And therefore, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to divulge it. I'm going to make it known. And that's what they come and do. And I, I, I'm going to be transparent here. This is the sin. You know what? On my shelf, under the blanket, is the book of Artemis. And I practice spells 10 through 15 right, every day of the week. And this is what I've been doing. It begins with confession. And what do they do next? They say, we turn away from this thing that we've been practicing to exercise control over the supernatural back to the one who is supernatural. And they take action, right? So true repentance always begins with confession and then it always takes action. And they burn their books. The books are worth a fortune, right? In the ancient world, books were expensive to begin with. When you had books that were thought to contain special power, you're talking uber, millions and millions of dollars is what's described here of being burned in the in the in the sense of these confessors coming and burning it. And they turn back to God in terms of drawing near to him. And again in verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Why did it prevail? Right? Because in the midst of their, their frustration and anger, in the midst of your frustration and anger, right? the question is, do you turn away or turn toward? To turn toward God is to say, God, I am so frustrated and angry uh, this, is a, this is a painful world. And God says, I know. He says, I think you should be doing more. I really hate what you're allowing to go on in my life. And he says, I know. And you might say, in the heart of my hearts, at the height of my contempt and my anger and my frustration, I would kill you. And he would also say, I know. And you have. And this is the love that he displays, right? to bring healing to the world. And why he invites you to continue to turn toward him and away from magic. Because magic will yield you nothing but hurt and despair and death. Right? But to turn back to him, 
right, is to turn back to his love and his desire to see you made whole. And it's to that love that we come to this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your authority, which is not something to be abused. We praise you that you have command over all things, uh, whether evil spirits or otherwise. We do confess that our hearts are often hurting, that we're in places of pain, and we're often frustrated with the way that you run things. But we turn toward you this morning and ask that your spirit would be upon us and encourage us in our repentance, and that for, particularly for each of us, whatever we have the temptation to turn toward, I pray that you would encourage us to burn it and encourage us even before that to confess it to others, to divulge it so that we might be transparent and know the freedom of not having to live as one uh, who, who uh, manufactures and maintains an image, but instead to be truly known as people who are broken, as people who turn to the wrong thing. So encourage us and make us strong and help us to, uh, to burn those aspects of magic that we embrace. And in turning back to you, pray that you would, you would meet us in love and that you would swallow us up in your righteousness and, your, um, and that you would even put the words on our very lips, Abba, Father. We ask that you would encourage us and nourish us uh, in this today as we come to the table. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.